Good evening, folks. Welcome back to the RF Factor, episode 15 with Sasha Larkin. It's uh, Pete again and me, Ray, and uh, we're looking forward to this conversation with uh, Sasha. But before we begin, Pete, how you doing? Good, Ray. How are you? I'm doing fine. Anything you want to tell us, Pete? Oh, you know what? I usually say that same old thing every week about relentless follow-up and You're the tired. other factor, You're but tired. I'm not going to repeat it tonight. I mean, there's what, 15 times already? Everybody must be sick of it. Yeah. I'll skip this one, but RF factor stands for relentless follow-up. Yes. If you're well, going to put a new program in place, a new initiative, you know, you put policies in place, you put general orders in place. If nobody follows up on them after a while, they just float away like like feathers up in the sky, you know, and um, it takes relentless follow-up to make sure that everything you intended to happen is happening. And if not, why not? So that enough enough of that, Ray. Let's get into it tonight. Oh, okay. We got I, a great I, guest. She's all set up. She's got like radio free Europe there, man. I love so, it. Uh, yes. Hey so Sasha, um, really happy that you came on board with us tonight. I know we've been trying to connect with you. Um, you are kind of busy. Uh, you work for a very busy metropolitan police department. So thanks for making time with us here. Thank and you. uh let me just throw it right out to you. Tell us about yourself. Well, thank you, Ray and Pete. I'm really excited and honored to be here. And Pete, before I forget, relentless follow-up. Did you get that from Ghetto Side, the book, Ghetto Side? No, actually, we were just talking one day and um, trying to understand what we were going to do. And um, it fell out um, and and uh, it turned into uh, the RF factor. Um, I love it. I, I yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah, but I, I'd like to hear your take on that. Where, yeah, where you yeah we'd that like up. to hear yeah. that, right. It's, yeah. re it's actually your timing is divine with that, with that saying. So there's a book, it's called Ghetto Side. It was written by some cops out of LA. And it's really, if you're in law enforcement, you should read Ghetto Side. It is one of the most eye-opening books. And it's not something you're going to read and go, oh, I never thought of it like that. It's just, it really goes down to the brass tacks of relentless follow-up. It talks about the fact that through a lot of the decades, 80s, 90s, even into the early 2000s, how um, in a lot of major cities, there was a disproportionate number of um, minorities suffering and being victims of homicide. And it talked about the fact that there was a perception in a lot of places where maybe the police put different focus, different intensity, different value on those cases than they did in a wealthy neighborhood or a, a white victim, right? And it really went back to the amount of money a homicide costs any community, right? People don't really break down, you know, $8 million, $10 million by the time you're talking about court and imprisonment and all of the different processes. But it talked about how regardless of, of who your victim is, relentless follow-up. It's the magic, right? When, when something happens, maybe a homicide or a stolen car, the way to solve that crime is relentless follow-up. The way to make the community feel valued, relentless follow-up. And it's, it's, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head with your opener, Pete. It was brilliant. You know, and what your, your remarks are so timely and, 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 and appreciated because thinking, putting ourselves in, in the place of um, a survivor of a victim of gun violence or a victim of any murder or, or of any crime for that matter. The last thing you want to do is turn on the TV and hear somebody standing up there saying on this case, we're going to leave no stone unturned. We're, we're, we're going to, you know, all hands on deck. And you're going to say to yourself, nobody ever said that about my, my, my case. Right. And, 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 the, and, and the distrust that that generates. I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I'm, I'm going to read that book. Before we leave, I've got to write that down. But uh, I, I think that um, we're all on the same page here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, for us at in Las Vegas, relentless follow-up has become culture. Uh, the sheriff, Sheriff Joe Lombardo, he came across this book. And if I, if I remember the story correctly, I think his wife, who's a brilliant woman, gave it to him and said, hey, you got to look at this. And once we read it, he started putting it on all of our promotional exams. So if you have any sort of rank on our agency, you've read Ghetto Side. Yeah, you've been tested on it. And it's what we say, right? It becomes, we, we really don't allow it to become cliche because relentless follow-up has to mean something. It can't become white noise. 
right? To your point, you don't want people to hear it and go, oh yeah, not on my case. No, on every case, right? And what we've we've done is we've really taken a culture because if, if I can have bragging rights for just a half of a second, uh, I do not work in homicide, but our homicide section has a 92% solvability rate this year, uh, which is, right? And we're not, I mean, we're at 131 homicides today. And of that, we're at a 92, 93% solve rate, which is due to relentless follow-up, right? Not because we're any smarter by any stretch of the imagination, but because those cops, those detectives have that, that culture ingrained in them, that relentless follow-up. But it's also true on a shooting where the victim doesn't die. Because the reason victims aren't dying all the time is because modern medicine is amazing. Uh, yep, absolutely. Right? I mean, we're keeping more and more people alive, thankfully, but we have to give them we have to give them just as much attention on their cases because a bona fide shooter is a bona fide shooter, regardless if it's a kill or not. And we owe them the same amount of of respect and and adoration to their case as a person who passes away. So relentless follow-up for us is is really important. So I'm happy to hear that you guys are putting that out as a platform because the more that law enforcement goes to embrace that, like you're right, Pete, you said the more we earn community trust because they will see that we are hopefully um, operating from a place that they understand is colorblind, that is socioeconomically equal, right? Regardless of where you come from. And I think that's the magic in us earning their trust is that they understand that if you're a victim, we're going to treat your case the same. Right. Wow. Pete, Pete. Wow. Right. Mic and, drop, mic drop right Mike, there. Yeah, right, and yeah. I want to, I want to go up front. This was not scripted. This was complete <laughs> surprise. That's half the fun, right? Uh, absolutely. In fact, one of our prior guests actually called us out on the, the relentless follow-up and uh, you know who he is. We were just talking about uh, Chris Bellavita. Yes. And he, and he really did that in a sense to sort of pin us down, to have us really explain um, what relentless follow-up was. I really wish I had a lifeline that I could have called you on that particular <laughs> night because the way you've explained it is far better than I could even uh, even visualize it. Um, I do want to get into your background because it, it's exceptional. But I will also tell you that what we've recognized with relentless follow-up is that uh, it's also critically important in terms of, of advancing initiatives and, mm -hmm. and projects and, and to be able to innovate organizations. And we joke around often, Pete and I, that it's about looking in the rearview mirror. You can't, as a leader, you just cannot always be looking ahead. You have to constantly look back in your rearview mirror and checking what's going on and following up on those projects. So yeah. love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on that as well. But, but please tell us about your background. So I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so I've been a Southwest girl the majority of my life. I came to Vegas after college. So I'll let you in on a little secret, Ray. You might know this about me or you might not, but growing up, I was a classically trained ballet dancer, I like do. point shoes I and do. all, right? I do. Yep, I remember. I can neither confirm nor deny if I ever wore a tutu, but I did wear point <laughs> shoes. I'm just kidding. But I moved to Vegas to uh, really pursue my dream of being a classically trained dancer and ballet dancer. And you have to be careful in Vegas when you say dancer. I really have to preface it by saying I wore point shoes and a leotard. So I just want to be clear about that. We're clear. We're clear. <laughs> but um, as, as sometimes, you know, they always say that there's nothing God loves more than a good plan. So as I was executing what I thought was my life plan, I was working at a restaurant during the day and I always wanted to go to graduate school. I just didn't have the funds to do it right away. And I was bartending at a restaurant and the police, the recruiters for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department used to come into the restaurant where I worked and they said, oh, you should, you should join the police department. We're hiring. And I said, well, I'm going to go to grad school and then I'm going to consider going federal. I thought I would go to the FBI. I really wanted to be like Agent Scully. Do you remember Agent Scully? Yes. She was my hero. And so I was going to go to the FBI and do that. I didn't understand the, how much paperwork you feds, Pete, have to do. Uh, I didn't understand that it wasn't what Agent Scully was doing. So they said, well, just come on a ride along and you can you can see what it's like. And that was it. You know, the second you get in a black and white and you get to answer calls for service and you're going from one exciting call to the other and you're driving down Las Vegas Boulevard. And that was it. The, I'd been bitten by the bug. And they recruited me and I, I joined up in uh, late 98 and went to the academy in 99. And it's been the dream of a lifetime. I don't have one regret. Uh, they, I tell people all the time, they pay me to do what I love. And every job I've had, I've loved. 
um, I've never worked a job where I didn't want to get up and go to work. Uh, I get up every day at 4.15 full of spit and vinegar and I just have a hard time turning it off because this is it. This is my passion and how lucky I am to live it. You're a deputy chief now, right? I am. I'm the deputy chief of Homeland Security, which means I run counterterrorism. I run our fusion center, our real-time crime center. I have SWAT, canine, air support, Homeland Saturation team. I have criminal intel, organized crime, public corruption, all the, what I consider really the best job on the department. That's it? That, that's all you have? That's what, are you doing? What, what are you doing in your spare time? I have four children. <laughs> My God. No, so, Sasha, when, when I uh, first met you, was actually at the Naval Postgraduate School. Right. It was the, I think it was at the Fusion Liaison Training first before it was we Fusion started. Center Leadership, uh, that oh, week long FCLP, wasn't it? I, I'm not sure if it was. Yeah. I know we we would teach together there, but yes. I thought originally was when there was a Fusion Center training that was directed at liaison officer, regardless, I think you're right. I think you're regardless, right. I, I was taken back by, um, because back, back then in the, in the fusion center network, this outreach into, uh, the law enforcement community, as well as the other communities, whether it was the, the public or, or security, um, it, it was really, it was tough for fusion centers to get in that lane. And you and and your partner in crime at that time, you guys made it sound so easy the way you did it. And it was really based on on trust and relationships with the people you worked with. And I thought that was just exceptional the way uh, the way you did that. Can you explain that? Sure. So I, I will preface this by saying if you would have told me 23 years ago that I would ever do this kind of work. Uh, it, it wouldn't have made sense in my brain, right? And I think that's the beauty of the evolution of policing is that, you know, we're in our 20s, we sign up. And at least when I signed up, I wanted to drive fast, catch bad guys, take them to jail and repeat. And at that time, we didn't have a policy manual that was, you know, a foot long. And we didn't have anything that said you couldn't drive fast or uh, chase somebody. And so it was a different era in policing. And it really was a time when we had a different connection to the community. We had a different connection to the public. And I don't think that I quite understood as a young patrol cop how important that legitimacy was for our agency, for our profession, and for people to really trust us. Because I thought my job was to get bad guys off the street and the public would trust me. So through that evolution, um, I spent a long time on the street. I loved being a street cop. That's why I signed up. I spent many, many years as a patrol cop. And, you know, I tinkered around in some investigative units. I went to Vice for a while because, as you can imagine, Vegas, that's a, a pretty interesting job. And worked undercover there for a while. I went to organized crime for a while and worked undercover. And then I came back and worked on the street as a field training officer. And I loved that job. And while I was a field training officer in 2004, I was involved in two officer involved shootings in one year. And when I came back, I had an in-custody death. Um, at the end of that year where a, a man jumped out of a window on um, PCP naked, because you know, they're always naked, Ray. They're always naked. Jumped out of a third story window and landed on the hood of my car. Uh, and by the way, I also want to just add that in my career, three times uh, a shot stabbed or bloody person has landed on the hood of my car. Who does that happen to? <laughs> so, I, I don't. I, so when people ask me, do you have any regrets? I'm like, no, no, I've had a great career. I've had people land on my car often. Um, but in that instance, he ended up passing away from the trauma and bleeding out. But the reason that matters is at the end of that, my captain came down and said, Hey, um, maybe you and your gray cloud should go get off the street for a minute <laughs> and go, go take your war stories and go teach at the police academy. So I went to the police academy and was an instructor up there for almost three years, which was what a great job. They paid me to tell my war stories. Uh, work out and yell at people. Greatest job, <laughs> right? And then I promoted out of the academy to sergeant and therein uh, really is where my ability to connect with the community started. I worked as a sergeant in a mainly African-American neighborhood, very impoverished, section eight, um, government subsidized kind of a space. And at the time, this area was the most violent area in the state of Nevada with more homicides in one square mile than any other place. 
And we we believed at that time a lot of what uh, the broken windows theory, right? As you can remember, like Bill Bratton really made very famous. And we really thought that if we arrested everyone, jaywalking, littering, that they wouldn't be on the street to commit the bigger crimes. So that's how we policed. But what happened was in that net, we took a lot of good people to jail and we started to erode public trust mm. and they started to not trust us and not like us. And homicides went up. And so we really had to do a self-evaluation of what were we doing that was causing this? Well, the happen chance for me was I was I was running a, a unit in this in this neighborhood. Uh, of course, we were and I'm a Hispanic female, but my cops were all white. We had one African-American guy on my team and we were trying to figure out how to make a dent in this high crime neighborhood. And earn public trust. And we were doing foot patrol, trying to get out using the New York model, get out of our cars and talk to people. Really, it's not revolutionary. Uh, you guys have been doing it back east for years. But we removed that barrier right of the car. And so we started walking around talking to people. And we end up figuring out that uh, we had no idea who made up our neighborhood. We had a gross assumption of who was there, but we hadn't really taken the time to do a full assessment. So that was mistake and lesson number one is you can't police a community that you don't know who makes it up, mm. right? And especially as a supervisor, right? I was the sergeant and I didn't know who made up my neighborhood. Well, in the neighborhood, there was two mosques. There was a, a Sunni mosque run by a, a former Black Panther out of Chicago. And most of them were, not all of them, but a good number of them were um, ex-felons or had been incarcerated. And they had called themselves um, a revert mosque, which means they believed they were born Muslim, but lost their way and then discovered Allah while incarcerated and reverted back to their original birthright. And about a mile down the street was an NOI or a Nation of Islam mosque. And the two of them didn't necessarily get together and, and nor did they get along. So that was a really important nugget for us to understand was we were policing a neighborhood that had a very strong, oh, and by the way, there was a Christian church on every corner. There was, there's probably 80 little churches in this small neighborhood. So here you have a neighborhood impoverished by crime and poverty, yet trying to steep themselves in religion, regardless of what uh, flag they fly as far as religious banner. And we, the police, had zero connectivity to any of that. So that was really how it started, was doing foot patrol, walking by this mosque and going, my guy's asking me, what that was all about. And I didn't know, I didn't know anything about Islam and I'd never really thought much about it. I was raised Baptist and Catholic um, and then started teaching yoga at a young age and knew everything about Hinduism and Buddhism, but didn't know much about Islam other than what Fox News told me after 9-11. And I think that that was something that the majority of the American public suffered from, right? We knew that they flew planes into the Twin Towers, so Islam bad, right? We didn't know, I didn't really expand my horizons past that. So learning that I needed to understand the depth, the, the true intricacies of this religion, of this culture, of this community was a big slap in the face because once we peeled the onion back and we started to develop relationships in this mosque, just by walking by and saying, hello, it became probably one of the strongest community relationships we have to this day. There's not a mosque in Las Vegas that we don't have connection to the imam, to the community directors, to the community. We go to Ramadan every year at all of the mosques. Whatever they need, they are connected to us, the sheriff, all the way up. And that was the, probably the blessing of my career, was learning how powerful that was to have that connection. And, and not, just, not just in Islam. Um, this was 2008, 2009 that this happened. And that was the birth of our fusion liaison, our terrorism liaison program, was we started to develop relationships. They started to want to be connected to us. They started to want to share information. We wanted to help their community be better and stronger. And from there, that's how that was born. And then when you and I saw each other at NPS, it was 2011, 2010, 2011, I'm, I'm guessing. And in 2012, if you remember, October of 2012, there was a shooting in Wisconsin. Right. At the Sikh temple. Sikh temple. And the sheriff at the time called down yeah. to we, the fusion center. Actually, just to interrupt you a second. We yeah. actually had uh, Jason Smith on uh, early in, uh, in our podcast and you know, he, uh, he was involved with that. So it's an amazing story. I've heard that. I'm not sure if it was him that told it, but I've heard that story about what they went through that day. 
mm-hmm. really remarkable. And, you know, we, when the sheriff called down and said, Hey, you guys do that religious outreach thing, go over to the Sikh temples and make sure everything's okay. And we went, oh, we have Sikh temples. Right? Because we were so focused on developing this relationship within the Muslim religion that we hadn't really expanded past that. And that was probably eye opener number two was uh, if you're going to do community based work, it has to be inclusive, not exclusive. And so we decided that we needed to go figure out who made up the entire community, not just our section. And that's when they put us in the fusion center full time. And we began what became one of the largest outreach programs in the country as far as religious connectivity. And now I will, I will, I would say that there's not a religious facility that we don't have some sort of connection to within our community. And we're, we're about 2 million residents right now, 42 million visitors. So it's, it's not as big as, you know, Jersey or New York. So we still have the ability to navigate it, but it's a big little city, which makes it a little bit easier for us to do that relationship development in. Right. But that's the beginning of it. That's, that's really how it started. And I just, I think that what made it, successful part of it was force of personality because the guys I had working with me loved the work and they were passionate about it and they liked learning about culture. It's not work that you can be voluntold to do because it will push your bounds of comfortability from the things that you learn to the foods that you'll eat and the people that you'll meet. So it really has to be a love for people and, and, and understanding what makes them tick regardless of where they come from or who they bow their head to. You know, I know you get that. So that was the beginning of it. Tell us about um, your theory on command presence. Mm. Command presence. So look, uh, I have the ability to navigate this career uh, in this shell, right? As a Hispanic female. And I don't think it's good or bad. I think that going through policing as a woman is neither better nor worse uh, than it is to go through as a man. I think that there's different strengths and different abilities that I have to navigate it. And I've really tried within my career to focus on those strengths and not dwell on my weaknesses. Command presence for me was having the competency, uh, may it be in defensive tactics or knowing the laws or whatever it is, having competency first, understanding what the process was, understanding what my job is, So I show up out there on the street with um, confidence, with the ability to know what it is that I can and should do in a situation. The second part of that is knowing that my training is up to date, right? I told you I get up every day at 4.15. I get up and go to the gym at 4.15 every day. Not because because I have to or someone tells me I will or, or even because there's any monetary incentive. It's because I know that the person that's out there on the street that wants to kill me is up working out, maybe in prison, maybe at their house, but they're up training at some point. Um, And the other part of that is that my children see me have that routine and see me training. And so hopefully that will become a part of who they are and understanding the discipline that it takes in order to be um, healthy and squared away and have that, that, that confidence, that command presence. So for me, command presence started early in my career because, uh, as you can see, um, my hair is very long. It almost hits my natural waist. And before I became a police officer, I told you I was a ballet dancer. So my hair was about the same length. When we went into the police academy in the late 90s, we had to shave our heads. And so I wore my hair about a half an inch tall and then shaved over my ears and shaved over my collar. And it was a little bit longer than yours, Ray. But um, it, it wasn't it wasn't my favorite thing to do. As a matter of fact, it was ego crushing. It was it was very, very difficult. But what I knew was I was never going to quit because they took my hair and I was committed not only because I loved this profession, but I was committed that, yeah, you know what? I can do this for all of these other reasons. So it was in that moment that I knew that when I showed up on a scene the bad guy was making a few different, they were having a few thoughts. The bad guy is usually looking at us. Can they outrun us? Can they outfight us? Can they outsmart us? Right? So it was my job to show up. They, the first judgment is it's human nature, right? We make a snap assessment of someone. 
uh, maybe if we're dating them or if we're in a, a work capacity, we automatically size each other up as human beings all the time. Could I take them out? Could I outwit them? Should I date them? Am I attracted to them? Right. We make all of these, we make all of these um, unconscious or maybe conscious decisions. So what we learned early on was I was never going to be the biggest, baddest, fastest, strongest, but I was going to show up and I was going to be competent. I was going to know what I was talking about. So the bad guy wasn't going to outmaneuver me with wits. I was going to show up in shape with my boots shine, my uniform squared away, my hair high and tight, because they weren't going to find a chink in my external armor. And the last part was that I had to show up with that sense of I'm leaving here in one piece and going home tonight. And you're either going to jail or we're going to leave here peacefully together, but I'm going home. So how that happens is up to you. And so for me, it was just that essence of knowing that I was going to allow them, of course, right, to dictate the scenario as far as um, any use of force or anything else that was going to occur. But I knew the rules. I knew the regulations. I knew my policy and procedure. And I was going to make sure it was um, the most peaceful interaction that they would allow it to be. So command presence. And what I always teach to new cops coming through is it's that belief in yourself. It's that understanding that you are competent. You are prepared for that scenario. And you've done everything up until that moment to be ready for it. Because once you're in the fight, it's too late to coulda, shoulda, woulda. And it's just, it's something that you can't tell someone until you're in the moment. And having been in two officer involved shootings, I will tell you that training matters. Training paid off for me in those two, in, in those two um, incidents. And things that happen subconsciously that you learn on the range, that you learn during defensive tactics, whatever it is, they saved my life twice. So I will always, I will never cancel my cops training days unless it's an emergency. I ensure that that happens for them because one day it will save their life too. So I hope that answers your question, Pete. For me, command presence is, is just that belief and knowledge in your strength and yourself and showing up out there and making sure that the bad guy sees it uh, because they are making that judgment on us just as we are on them. Now you know that you're obligated to write a book about it. <laughs> I don't know about That's, that. But... Seriously, we're waiting for the book. I mean, this is outstanding. Um, I thought I was going to get a little description. In, uh, oh, well, you got me talking about something I believe in and that I love very much. You know, these, especially now, 23 years into my career, and I get to see these young cops coming up. They have a very different experience than we did out on the street. You know, they'll never know policing without an iPhone, without a body worn camera, which I believe in wholeheartedly. Um, but I think that it's just a different experience. So we have to give them all of our tools and experiences that they can navigate without making some of the mistakes that we did, you know? Absolutely. I'll give you a good example of command presence. I wanted to, I was thinking when you were talking. When I was a field training officer, I had this young, uh, young kid that had just graduated the academy and we stopped this, this big, tall, um, this big, tall guy. He, he looked like a known um, serial shoplifter in the area. And so my guy gets him stopped and we put him in front of our patrol car and he grabs the top of his foot and he pulls his heel towards his glute and he's stretching. And I looked at my trainee and I said, hey, um, I, I think he's stretching. And it didn't dawn on him why he would be stretching. And we had just gotten tasers. It was like 2004, I think, 2003, 2004. And so this guy for a good four or five minutes stretches side to side legs, calves, he might as well have been ready to go play a football game for the NFL. And my poor trainee, you know, he's, he's just fresh out of the academy. He's in his basic ready stance. He's got his little notebook out. He's asking all the questions he was supposed to ask. And that guy took off running. And anyway, we ended up catching him, taking him to custody. And I told my kid, I said, hey, uh, did you notice that he was stretching and getting ready to go? He goes, no, but why did he do that? Why did he decide to run? Oh, it's command presence right? He knew that you were so nervous. You were more worried about getting that information written down than you were of embracing the person. Because at the end of the day, we're in the people business, internally and externally. We're in the people business, right? And what makes a good cop is that ability to talk to people without that checklist, I, I think. And so to me, that's command presence, right? Is paying attention to the person. Wow. Outstanding. So, Sasha, there, there certainly are things that, regardless of how much you prepare, um, it's, not in, it's not until you're in the thick of things that you realize what's happening. And mm -hmm. I want to bring you back for a moment to October 2017. 
what uh, you and and your agency experienced uh, mm. with the uh, the Harvest Music uh, Festival. Can you tell us about that? And 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 again, maybe tell us from the perspective of you know what you've learned that you've been now able to pass on to the folks under your command. Mm. And it's it's such a wide answer. So I'll do my best to narrow it down in a few different lanes. The first is you're right, Ray, you're, that's not in the manual. Uh, mass shooting is, is not in the manual where you're able to refer to it quickly, especially something like that. I, I think that maybe in New York, you guys prepare for it differently because of 9-11 and because of your experiences, you've had, um, football teams and baseball teams, and you've had the New York City Marathon, you have these things that bring in the, the ball dropping, right? At New Year's Eve, you have all of these things that prepare you for um, the thought of a mass casualty event. Well, even though we have 42 million visitors a year and we have the Las Vegas Strip and we have all of, we have New Year's Eve and all of these things that bring large groups of people together. You know, when I really think back after a career in Homeland Security, I don't think we ever thought maniacally enough. I don't think that we ever thought about an open air country music concert and somebody going up to uh, the high rise of a hotel across the street and opening fire. And I think that the biggest lesson for us was that we had to remember nothing was that nothing is out of the question anymore. When we talk about um, countering violent extremism or terrorism or any of the, the, acronyms that get brought up now as it relates to these active shooter events, we can't think maniacally enough. We can't, we can't close off any options and we have to start thinking and opening our minds to the possibilities that anything is possible now. And, and, and if we really look at the, the scope of what is happening around the world in the last five to seven years, it is these smaller single person attacks, right? We're not looking to dismantle a full cell anymore like we were in the early 2000s. We're looking at um, lone wolf actors or single, single shooters, just like Stephen Paddock was uh, at the Route 91 festival. Stephen Paddock was someone that had not been on our radar. He had no criminal history. He was not in debt. He was not crazy. He was not a drug user. He wasn't an alcoholic. He was um, none of those things. He hadn't done anything to show up on any police radar. He didn't live in the city of Las Vegas. He lived just on the outskirts in a little city that we call Mesquite, just just a, a less than an hour uh, away from here. So there was never a time when when he had even been a part of a SAR, like a suspicious activity report or anything. But he did come to Vegas to gamble a lot. He did. He was a high roller of sorts. He did spend a lot of money in the casinos. And you know, the FBI came afterwards and did investigation. The behavioral analysis unit came out and said he suffered from severe narcissistic tendencies. So I guess that's a tough one to get to show up on your radar because there's probably many people out there that probably have some sort or some form of um, these behavioral characteristics. So what did we learn on that day other than not thinking maniacally enough? Um, we learned the importance of command and control. We learned the importance of how we communicate everything from the radio channels that we use at a special event to the radio station, the radio channel for our, um, for communications with dispatch within the area command that the special event sits. What do I mean by that? When we have a large event, cause we do a lot of special events, concerts and fights and stuff like that. There's usually a, they're on a separate channel. So they're not interfering with the radio traffic of the calls for service of the of the neighborhood or the, the area command that the event is happening in. But what happened on this night was that the, this, the shooting breaks out and they're on the special events radio channel. So the area command that housed this event, the strip didn't know that this shooting was occurring until these calls started coming in from callers that were leaving the route 91 festival or people that were still there calling for help. So there was a little bit of a breakdown in communication that we had to overcome. The second part of that is, we had trained since uh, you, you, I'm sure you guys will remember, but November of 2008 in Mumbai, India, Lakshari Taiba a terrorist organization comes off the coast of Mumbai, right? And does what we call the um, multi-attack, multi-simulated attacks, um, simultaneous attacks at various locations. They take over the Taj Hotel, the Oberai, hospitals, cafes, taxi cabs, 
And it was the first time that we had seen these terrorists also then use secondary explosive devices to target first responders. So we had sent folks to India in 2008 to do the um, debrief of this incident. And the biggest takeaways for us was the importance of a relationship between police and fire. And then the second was how do we prevent first responders from over converging at an event and then being the victim of a secondary explosive device or even just a victim of overconvergence, right? So when they came back, we started in 2010 uh, and something that I teach at NPS a lot is, is the importance and it is just the essential communication and training and partnership between the police department and the fire department. Now, look, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I didn't have a plethora of fire jokes and the fact that they get to work half the time and make twice the money. Yes, I'm every once in a while jealous about it. But that relationship for us on one October saved lives, without a doubt. We've been training with our fire department for the last decade. We stole something from L.A. called MACTAC, which was what they were using to prevent overconvergence and how they respond to coordinated simultaneous attacks, uh, multi-assault, casualty, um, terrorist attacks. We brought it back for our cops. We molded it to fit our city. And we started training it in 2010. We brought the fire department in in 2011. And we trained all of the police and fire in Southern Nevada in this tactic. And it covers everything from um, how you respond to how you uh, create um, force protection teams when you go into the warm zones to get people out. And it was that on one October that saved lives. The fire department had bulletproof vests that they had gotten uh, on a grant. They knew what our response was. We knew what theirs was. They were willing and able to come in with us in, into arguably a hot zone at that time. And they absolutely saved lives. But that would have never happened if we didn't have that pre-planning and coordination with them. So to me, those were the two biggest takeaways that, that getting how to get our cops there safely, not overconverge them, how to have clear communication of command and control, because that incident was so chaotic for so long. I mean, you have to remember in the, the first 10 to 12 minutes, we didn't know where the shooter was and, and probably arguably even longer than that. We couldn't figure out where he was. And, and because the way uh, Las Vegas Boulevard is situated, the hotel, the sound, um, reverberates off of those buildings. So one minute it would sound like the shooting was coming from the West side. Then the next minute it sounded like it was coming from the North side. So Incredible. The cops, yeah, they, they didn't know where to point their guns and they were trying, they were trying really hard. They were running towards gunfire, but they just couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And I think that's the most harrowing part of that is how do you stop an attack that you can't find? And so, you know, look, there's hundreds of takeaways that we got, uh, little, little nuances and nuggets of things that we would do different or things that we would do better. But I'm so proud of the police officers that were there that night. There was 50 cops working overtime at that event um, and four sergeants and a lieutenant. And as far as I'm concerned, they're all heroes. They all did a phenomenal job. Uh, we did lose a police officer, Charleston Hartfield. He was um, shot trying to rescue someone. And then we had a few officers that were injured. Um, Casey Clarkson, he's a sergeant actually for me in SWAT now. He got shot in the neck. And then Brady Cook, uh, he was day two out of the police academy. He was shot in the arm uh, through and through and then through the side of his chest. But none of them left the fight. None of them quit. They all stayed engaged and saved lives that night, which is really for me the, the, the magic of what it is that we do out there. And Listen, 60 people lost their lives, 58 people originally. We've lost two others since then due to post-related traumas. And then, you know, over 800 people were shot or injured that didn't lose their lives, but have lasting post-traumatic stress syndrome, lasting injuries and, and rebuildings of bones and, and different things. And then in, in closing, Ray, to answer your question, one of the biggest takeaways was the mental well-being and and mental health of our first responders you know when i hired on we would and i know it's the same for both of you we would go call to call you would pull a dead baby out of a swimming pool you'd maybe go to a fatal accident and you'd go on a homicide with a gang shooting and then you would go to lunch right and then right and that's day in and day out and day in and day yeah. out and that accumulated trauma goes somewhere and then now you layer on top of it um you have a mass casualty event you have 9-11, you have 1 October, we have something that shocks the consciousness on a level that none of us can really conceptualize. 
and we expect our cops to go back to work. And at some point we had to go, hold on, <laughs> we need to start normalizing wellness. We need to start normalizing with our cops that it's okay to not be okay. As a matter of fact, after it happened, I called up to NYPD and I said, hey, tell me a little bit about the process. What happened in the years that followed 9-11? And the woman I talked to up there said, you won't begin to see the effects of the trauma for five years. And in 10 years, you'll start to see suicide and divorce rates go up. She said for us at the 15-year mark is when cancer started to soar and we started to lose all of our folks. She said, right now, you'll get the onesie twosies. She said, but you won't really see the full effects of it for a decade. Wow. Right? So how do you prepare? How do you prepare your cops? And in in that decade, they're going to go on homicides and dead babies and fatal accidents. How do we ensure that they have a healthy 30-year career and enjoy their retirement for more than six months after they retire? To me, that's the biggest takeaway Take, put the tactics aside, right? I think that we can figure out how to navigate the tactics, but we're in the people business. We got to take care of our people. And you start today. Yeah. Um, and, and what exacerbates I, this, I think, is the fact that these police officers turn on the nightly news or they pick up the newspaper and they see that they're not appreciated and they're accused of of doing things that maybe they personally are never been involved in. And I think that that just, uh, just piles on the stress of feeling unappreciated. And at the same time, having to deal with all of these thoughts that they have and, and, and tragic uh, events. Yeah, it does. You know, it's interesting. You said that, because I think what you're describing is the broad brushstroke, right? And look, social media has amplified that a thousand times. It was interesting um, to come full circle. Um, July of 2015, Orlando happens, right? The mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub. And that was a Saturday night. Sunday morning, I wake up to the news and I see that. And... I called my team at the time I was back running um, uh, the outreach program. We were building at the time, the office of community engagement. We were, we were really undertaking this, this mass transition of how we did community policing on our organization and the sheriff, Joe Lombardo and our undersheriff at the time, Kevin McMahill, they said, look, we want the community to see that we're going to take this very seriously. So we built a whole bureau around community policing and the FLO program was, was housed in this umbrella. So I called my team and I said, Hey, I don't know if you guys saw what happened in Orlando, but we're going to go to work. So meet me at the office in an hour and be in your uniform. So we went down to headquarters and we pulled up all of the addresses of um, LGBTQ nightclubs, bars, and restaurants in Las Vegas. We got our addresses for all of our mosques and we broke up into pairs. And I said, look, we failed. Uh, we've been really focused on religions and being in all of these places, which we'd done a remarkable job at, but we hadn't really spent any time in the LGBT community. And let me pause right there for a moment and tell you why that matters. Look, uh, Ray, something that we studied at NPS that always made sense to me, you know, Dr. Dave Brandon taught this lesson and I'll, I'll never, it's changed the course of my career. Social, social isolation leads to radicalization or the potential thereof. If a community feels divergent, isolated, secluded, or separate from the greater whole, they have a greater chance of connecting with something that gives them that sense of connection. May that be um, radicalized through, you know, some sort of act of terrorism. May that be through gangs. Um, And even we see young girls that get radicalized by a pimp. They get pulled in because they were alone, they were separate from, and then they find someone to connect to that makes them feel whole, that makes them feel seen, right? So you have this, these communities that feel separate. Well, the LGBT community in, in many cities is, is separate from the greater whole, right? Judged, not accepted, uh, and not part of, of the actual community. And, um, I think that especially the police maybe don't go out of their way to bring them in. Right. So after the Pulse nightclub happens, we recognize there's three communities on this day in July that were painted with a broad brushstroke in the news. LGBT community, 
the Islamic community and law enforcement. Because I don't, rem- I don't know if you remember, the early report said um, there was an LGBTQ bar that had uh, the Pulse nightclub. And this person, this um, subject goes in and um, he had been into the bar, they said, a few times before. And then he goes and carries out this attack. And he was uh, associated with Islam, with, with the Muslim religion. So in one broad brushstroke, they say the Pulse nightclub must have done something, said something to, to set him off, to, to hurt his feelings, to offend him, right? This is why he comes back and carries out this attack. The second broad brushstroke is another Islamic radicalized terrorist. The third broad brushstroke was the police. They said the police waited outside for X amount of minutes and didn't go in. They were cowardice. They didn't have a plan. They, whatever it was, right? They, the media made all of these early statements. So here we are, three very different and separate communities, police, Muslims, and LGBTQ. So I told my folks, I said, look, people are going to look at this and think, what a tragedy that these, you know, they, the, the media will talk like this. I said, I don't, I think that we can spin this differently. I think we can make this a really powerful opportunity for connection. We're going to go to these LGBTQ bars with our hat in our hand and apologize for not coming here sooner. We're going to apologize for not coming to be a part of their community before tragedy struck. And we're going to ask them if they want to be connected to us, if they want to know us, be a part of what we do, learn about us, and more importantly, teach us about them. So that's what we did. We went to all the bars and all the restaurants, and I will tell you that every single one of them welcomed us with open arms. Many of them cried. Many of them embraced us and said, we've been waiting for you. We will, we will feed your cops. We will offer you the restroom if you need it, water, whatever you need, but you guys are afraid to come in here. And I said, well, that all changes today. And then we went to the mosques and we said, look, I'm sorry that this happened again. I understand it's not the Islamic community on a whole that committed this attack. It was one subject. It was one person. And then for our police officers, we said, look, we have to make sure that when tragedy strikes, that we're trained and ready and that we don't have a hesitation or we don't pause unless it's necessary. So let's train it. Let's learn from their mistakes if they had any. Let's learn from the lessons that they take away from this incident. And we really um, beefed up our our officer training. Um, We have a thing called AOST, Advanced Officer Skills Training. And then RBT, we do every year with our folks where we take um, previous officer-involved shootings or events, and we use the lessons learned in those events to train our cops. Reality-based training is what it stands for. And so we took a lot of those lessons and we incorporated it and we trained it and we worked with our supervisors on how we have command and control of something like that. But that day was a great equalizer uh, to your point, Pete, of how, how people can feel separate from and how social isolation can really, cause, can really cause such upheaval in a community. But we, the police, have the ability to bring community and police together. And it's not enough, right, for us just to build the bridge between us and the community. Where the magic really happens is when we create an environment where the communities then build a platform to each other because it's not enough for them just to feel connected to us. We don't want them to be out in the community looking at each other spitefully or judging each other because we're all in the same boat at the end of the day, right? We're all in the same boat of preventing crime and terrorism. So our children can grow up without fear. So we can watch the mailbox after dark and not be afraid, but we have to be invested in one another. And, and the full culmination of that story is after we got into the LGBT community, about a year and a half later, I was down at the, what we call the center, which is really the, the, the hub of our LGBT community. It's, it's where they can go for different services and outreach and, and, and things. And in the back room, I walked in and the manager said, hey, Sasha, you have to come see the magic that's happening here tonight. And it was during Passover. And we have a very, very large Jewish community here in Las Vegas, which is such a blessing, really wonderful community. And uh, a group of um, some of the, the, the Jewish folks were at the LGBTQ center having Passover dinner. And it was being served by some of the folks that worked at the center, some of the transgender uh, um, LGBTQ folks. They were wearing rainbow yarmulkes and they were singing and dancing and serving. And I had never seen a more joyous 
event filled with such love and no judgment of one another or who they were or what they represented. It was purely human beings connecting with other human beings and the labels had all been removed. And you want to talk about a mic drop moment. That was one of the biggest mic drop moments of my career was to see human connection uh, at the grassroots level that would have never previously happened um, without some of that work. And so at the end of the day, that was, that was a win for us. And, and if we can share any lessons with the rest of the country, it's that build those platforms for people to be people and remove the veils of, of labels so they can just celebrate. You know, you know what I'm finding that it's so intriguing in, in this discussion today is that, you know, we've had guests on um, representing law enforcement across the country. And what, what you're describing today is, is where you're looking across the country. You're looking at how your problems are their problems in other cities and states across the country, how your solutions aren't necessarily homegrown. Um, some are, but you have no qualms about borrowing someone else's, which, which is something that you don't see very often. Um, this idea of uh, police and fire training together uh, to respond to a dangerous event. Um, in some places where there is danger, the, the fire department is actually kept back. Fire and rescuers are actually held back from the scene because they don't have this shared knowledge, uh, equipment, uh, training, uh, preparedness that, that you so farsightedly saw as important. So we've had people on here that have been uh, to the Pulse night, nightclub shooting. We've had them um, handle the Amish children, a uh, school children uh, massacre in uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch country in Lancaster. We've had uh, other folks, right, Ray, that, that were involved in major uh, 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 mass shooting events. And um, I'm impressed that all of this, all of these problems and solutions are all, all coming together um, here tonight. But one thing that I, I, I do ask every guest that we have on, I ask him this question. In, in, uh, Machiavelli's The Prince, uh, he posed the question, is it better to be loved or feared? Mm. Now, I, I know what, what Machiavelli said uh, on behalf of the prince, but I, I really, I think we'd like to hear what your thoughts on that question would be. Mm. Is it better to be loved or feared? So listen, I, I having spent a long time studying Buddhism um, and Hinduism and the concept of duality, right? You, there is, there is no light without darkness. Um, love and fear, love and hate seem to somehow coexist um, as well. I think that there has to be an understanding of consequence. And if that's fear, then, then I guess that there has to be a sense of understanding that consequence is meant to modify behavior. And that is both within any organization and within a community. Because if there is no fear of consequence, then there becomes anarchy, there becomes uh, upheaval. And so there has to be some understanding of the balance of right and wrong. And when a decision is made where correction has to be instituted, then, that's, then that is probably fear-based. However, if you're talking about interpersonal connection, if you're talking about leadership, then, you know, listen, um, I've never had to rule with an iron fist uh, internally. I've never had to tell my folks, you'll follow me because I have this on my collar. I've never believed that that was effective. I truly believe what I said when I told you that we're in the people business. And it's a balance for me between allowing them enough space, right? I get to be the visionary at this rank. I get to be the idea fairy, the visionary, I get to come up with concept and say, hey, let's look at this and see how it applies to us locally. Let's look at A, B, and C. Let's look at, you know, the Pulse nightclub or, or whatever it is 
and, and figure out how to integrate the best practices here. You guys figure out what that looks like, but I want you to go down this road without micromanaging that. And I've never had to do that uh, while slamming my hand on a desk and telling them they will. However, the other side of that is there is a very clear expectation of excellence in what I expect of them, both within character and work product, that when that's not met, they are held accountable. Um, every once in a while, I'll raise my voice, but it's very rare, very, very rare. Um, because I think that at this level, at this, at this point, we're dealing with adults. And if I have to rule by fear, then I'm, I'm not going down the right path. So I think there is a balance of fear and love of hate and love. And I've always felt that if I bring out the best in people and maximize their strengths, and if I support them in their journey, because at the end of the day, it's about their journey. They are the ones that make me successful. I'm not doing all the hard work. They are. And if I support their hard work, if I support their dreams and their ambitions, it really does come full circle. Um, Leadership at the top is very lonely. It can be especially for someone that's an extrovert, especially for someone that loves people. But what I've learned over the years is that I leave my door open all the time. They can always come in and ask for help, right? The rule is if you're going to bitch up, you have to bitch through the chain uh, before you get to me. But if you just want to come in and ask me about my family or you want to talk to me about yours, my door is always open. But make no mistake about it, my expectations are high. I I do run nonstop uh, for about 18 hours a day. And I have a lot of energy and I have a lot of a, um, I have a very high uh, care factor and I don't settle for mediocrity. So within that space exists both love and fear. But I think the fear just comes from an understanding of what the expectation is and knowing that you need to meet it. But hopefully I can get people to meet that expectation through inspiration. And whenever I drill down my leadership qualities, um, and there's a bunch of different work that that we do to find out what is that your your cord, your your leadership cord. Mine is to inspire. Um, and that's how I lead is to inspire other people, to inspire greatness within them, to find what it is that makes them tick and and help them reach that. And so I guess my answer is both. He um, dualistic. A, a, better, a better answer I've never heard. So <laughs> I, I, I don't think you read the book. I, I think you wrote the book. Um, you just got me talking about what I love. So it becomes, look, this, I've never had a greater honor than I do to serve. And and I mean that in the most, um, non-flowery way. I love it. Right. Sasha. Ah, I love it. You know, I've known you for a long time and, uh, you are one selfless character. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thanks. Thank you for caring more about others than yourself. So thank you. So I have one final question, and that really is about others. Um, so I'll just put you in a really quick scenario here. You're about to get on an elevator, and you're with, it's just you and uh, a young a young officer. Uh, actually, it doesn't even have to be an officer. And they, they turn to you, and they say to you, and you only have a short two-minute trip. You're going up the elevator. What are you going to impart on them? in those two minutes about how to become a leader, whether it's something they should be reading, whether it's some advice that uh, you're passing on, or it's some experience that, that you've learned. You only have two minutes. Okay, deal. I tell them this is the greatest career in the world. You will never be sorry if you follow your passion. I've never, never regretted signing on the dotted line, and I've loved every day of this job. The important part is to have balance. You have to find balance. And it's probably the question I get most often asked is, how do you balance it all? Um, The truth is you have to prioritize, which is why I get up early in the morning and go to the gym because I have to take care of me. Because the truth is when I get home from that hour, I'm a nicer person. I have a more clear head in order to focus and make decisions from. Um, I've been an avid meditator for the last 25 years. I've obviously, I told you I've done yoga for a little over 25 years. So the ability to come in and still my mind, um, I start every day with that moment of gratitude because not every day, not every person gets another day in the world, right? Every day that we're given is a blessing. I bow my head every day and I say, thank you. Thank you for giving me another day, another opportunity to serve. Please just fill me with your wisdom 
and your strength to make those decisions, even when they're unpopular. That gratitude then sets me up to start the rest of my day. Um, and I start the day with my family, with my children, just really remembering and trying to send them off with the same positive love. And that's what I would say to someone in an elevator, have balance, right? Take care of yourself, have an outlet. You have to have an outlet because the years of compounded trauma is, is real, right? We all have some form, I'm sure, of PTSD, whatever label you want to put on it. But never forget that that will manifest. Everything we think, do, feel, say, and hear manifests in our body on a very real level, on a cellular level. So if you don't have an outlet, that's where you get weight gain, alcoholism, right? All of the other things. So I tell young cops, have an outlet. May that be church. May that be the gym. May that be a counselor or all of the above. Have an outlet. Have balance. Don't forget about your family because long after your career is over and the wheel keeps turning, your family is still there. You have to find that balance between family and work. And the last thing is I would tell them, follow your passion. Follow your passion, regardless of what it is or, or what you think other people think of it. Listen, um, there's been many times where people almost fell off their chairs laughing at some of the programs I wanted to start and told me I was crazy and told me it would never work. And there's nothing that motivated me more than somebody telling me that'll never work. Right. And so I think that those are the, those are the lessons in maturity. And lastly, stay humble, you know, in this career, especially as we step into leadership, listen more, talk less, listen to your folks, give them the platform to shine, put them in the spotlight, be humble and, and, and allow competency and allow uh, your passion to really lead the way and love every second of it because it goes so fast. Pete, that was phenomenal. Any last words? For me? Yes. I could, I mean, we have to end it now. (laughs) (laughs) It was a short elevator. You wanted to get on a higher elevator. That was outstanding. This was, this was great. I, I, I learned a lot tonight. I'll tell you that myself, but uh, this was outstanding, Sasha. Thank you so much. And thanks for, thanks for your service. I mean, this is outstanding. Can it was honored to be here with you guys. Honestly, I have the world of respect, Ray. I know we've known each other for over a decade and I know what a, an amazing career you had running the rock and doing all those things. So thank you for thinking of me, Pete. I'm so glad I got to connect with you. I know the ATF has got their work cut out for them and they're busier probably now than ever. So thank you for your service, both of you. And I was honored to be a part of this. And I hope that I hope all of our brothers and sisters out there continue to serve with such passion and, and remember that it's, it really is such important work and don't let social media or the news tell you otherwise, you know, lead from that place that, you know, is right, legal, lawful, moral, ethical, and you'll never be wrong. Hey, uh, Sasha, um, you definitely need to write a book and you need to get out on the, on the circuit. Phenomenal stuff. Very uh, inspiring. Thank you. Uh, My friend. Any, any other place that uh, folks can, you know, follow some of your work at, I, I know in the past you've, You've done some uh, charity or or community work. Anything you want to mention here? You know, at the time, right now, at the moment, um, I sit on two boards that mean a lot to me, what I spend most of my time with. I sit on the board for Make-A-Wish, which Mm -hmm. I believe in wholeheartedly. And, you know, we've had a lot of cops that whose children have been affected with uh, life-threatening illnesses. And then I sit on the board for Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts changed my life as a young woman. And uh, I spent a lot of time doing work for that and being a mom of two young daughters. So that's where I spend my time, energy, and money. And I think that if you have those organizations in your community, I, I vouch for them and I recommend them wholeheartedly. And then, you know, look at the end of the day right now, I spend a lot of time just trying to really educate folks on the importance of, of community building to prevent violent extremism. That's what we're working on. I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably my biggest social media um, platform. So find me on LinkedIn, connect with me. And I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, thank you. And, and folks, uh, You'll get to see uh, Sasha's uh, bio on the RF Factor, www.rffactor.com. Um, Sasha, I can't thank you enough. Thank Thanks you. for jumping on. This was an outstanding hour. Thank you. Thanks Honor. so much. Have a great Thanks night. Thanks for having me.